please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. morning, Redeemer family. had the pleasure of preaching in St. Paul and then out in Kokedo at my wife's church that she grew up in as a child. And it's been very, very sweet to encourage the saints there, but this is home, and it's good to see your faces, and it's good to be back. I'm excited to preach this text this morning. As you know, we're in Psalm 13, so we continue our summer psalm series. Let's pray. And ask for grace as we look at a sermon entitled, The Battle for Joy. The Battle for Joy, a field guide for depressed Christians. A field guide for depressed Christians. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for the Psalms. I thank you for all of your word. It is all authoritative. It is all inerrant. It is all infallible. It is all clear. The echoes of the gospel are heard on every page. The shadow of the cross is seen on every page. But Lord, we thank you for the Psalms that not only teach us to think biblically, but teach us how to feel biblically. Lord, I know intuitively, and I know explicitly that there are some in this room, Lord, who their minds, they know truth. In their minds, they know and affirm truth, and they love you, but their affections wane, and Psalm 13 gives voice to their prayers. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face? So Holy Spirit, would you do exceedingly above anything we could ask or think today for sad Christians to strengthen faith? That's what the devil's after is faith. So we pray that you would do that. So even if they still limp out of this building, They do it with the hope of knowing that they will yet again praise their God. Even if their grip on Christ is weak, his grip on them has never waned. Would you help them? In Jesus' name, amen. I and many other believers are painfully familiar with the evil twins known as depression and anxiety. And I say it that way, not only because I see it in Psalm 42, but because experientially in my life, 
And in many of yours, you know that they often go together. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? For those who claim to love God and trust Christ and to revel in the free grace of their salvation, perennial sadness can wreak havoc on their thinking and on their praying and on their reading and every other area of life. Yet many Christians today and many Christians throughout the centuries have wrestled with unwanted and seemingly uncaused depression. Just give you a sample of names that we know for sure struggled with depression. Martin Luther, John Bunyan, David Brainerd, William Cooper, and Charles Spurgeon, just to name a few. Here's some wise counsel from Ed Welch, who has written extensively on the topic of depression in the Christian life. Ed Welch says this, quote, depression is a form of suffering that cannot be reduced to one universal cause. This means that family and friends can't rush in with the answer. It is common for spiritually mature men and women who feel depressed to think that they're doing something wrong. On earth, however, God doesn't prescribe a happy life all the time, and he doesn't legislate emotions. And he goes on to say, just look at some of the Psalms. <laughs> Granted, sin is often lurking in and around depression. Often with depression, if you get underneath what's going on, you'll often find things like envy and fear and anger and lust and a desire to be sovereign over life, which we're not. Yes, those things are there. But depression is a complicated matter. Very complicated. Charles Spurgeon was a preeminently godly man. He wasn't just a good preacher. He was a Puritan. He was a holy man. He loved Jesus. He had the right theology. And yet hear his words. Quote, Quite involuntarily, Unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for your grief, and yet may become among the most unhappy men because, listen to this, for the time your body has conquered your soul. Anybody relate to that? Or is it just me? So one of the things that drives me crazy about perennial depression is because I know better. Why won't my heart and my body catch up with my brain? Where do you go when you feel that way? Do you sanitize your prayers? I think we do sometimes, and that's why we need the Psalms, because it is much more raw and real and guttural than we allow ourselves to be. Don't sanitize Psalm 13. When he's praying, what is he saying? How long, O Lord? Where are you? It's okay to pray like that, Christian. Sometimes it's the most, most faith-filled and worshipful thing you can do is go to your father and say, Abba, 
It's okay. There's so much more I want to say about depression in the Christian life, heart idolatry, physical issues, chemical stuff. There's all kinds of things that go into this. But I just want to let Psalm 13 do the talking. We don't know the exact circumstances of the psalmist, and therefore, wonderfully, Psalm 13 can be applied to a myriad of situations. Whether it's death, persecution, anxiety, depression, battles against temptation, or a perfect storm of a multitude of things that is causing your soul to be cast down. Whatever the cause may be, Psalm 13 offers us a field guide, basic principles to lay hold of. Here's my main point. And my wife, in her wisdom, said, when you say your main point, say it slow and say it twice. Because a lot of us take notes, which I know because I spend most of the sermon preaching to the top of your head. And that's wonderful because you're taking notes. So here it is. The joy-stealing grip of depression is loosened by the joy-strengthening grip of God's person and promises. So I'll say it twice. The joy-stealing grip of depression is loosened by the joy-strengthening grip of God's person and promises. Three things from the text that give us a field guide for depressed Christians. In our battle for joy, number one, be honest. Be honest. What do you mean? I mean this. Tell God how you feel with reverent yet raw emotion. Tell God how you feel with reverent yet raw emotion. Look at the text, Psalm 13. I know the young adults know this because we studied hermeneutics. When something is repeated numerous times in short order, it means to call attention to something. Four times in the opening verses of Psalm 13, four times. How long, how long, how long, how long? Something is wrong. Look at the text, verse number one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? We'll come back to that. And have sorrow in my heart all the day. And how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long four times? This is a clear indication that the psalmist is eager for an answer. I've had five children. <laughs> and when they want something, they don't just say it once. And every parent said, amen. How long, how long, how long, how long? There are only two verses in, and it's four times. This is not an eloquent prayer, believer. But it is heartfelt. And I would argue that it is faith-filled. Because David knows to whom to take his trouble and he is not afraid, based on the character of Yahweh, to say, answer me. Please, I know you're there. I know the truth. When depression strikes, we often feel suffocated. I've had so many believers tell, say that to me. It's, it, that word comes up all the time. I just feel suffocated. 
I can't breathe. I can't think. I'm foggy. I, I'm panicky. I don't know. It's, like, it's not like a broken leg. Someone comes in with a broken leg, you know what to do. Someone comes in with a broken heart, you don't know what to do. And they don't know what to do. So they often don't say anything for years because they're embarrassed. I didn't. When we feel this way, how long, how long, how long, oh Lord, the future grows dim under these kind of circumstances, and we cry out, how long? Just like the martyred saints in Revelation 6.10, they cry out, oh sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Some of you are asking that question today. I'm not challenging your theology. Many of you, you know your theology. You know the gospel. But as Spurgeon said, your body has conquered your soul, and you're in a season where that's how you are praying, and that's how you should pray. You say, how long will you hide your face from me? So I just want to encourage you. How you feel, saint, in this paradox of knowing truth but not feeling it is not foreign to the word of God, and he ordained that this be here. You serve the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Look what he says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David wants God to act quickly since he feels as if God is very distant. And note that it is because David knows that God will avenge his people. He knows the truth. Just look over at Psalm 14. We'll be there uh, next Sunday. Look at the last verse of Psalm 14. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. David has good theology. David has good eschatology. He knows who's in control. He knows who is all-powerful. He knows that God, Yahweh, is a covenant God. He's got the right answers, but his heart is broken. His pain is real and raw, so he speaks in real and raw terms. Depression and anxiety often cause us to do what he's doing right here. Do you see what David is doing? He's overstating the matter. He's catastrophizing. He knows better than this. Look at this. Will you forget me forever? David, really? <laughs> How long will you hide your face from me? Meaning like you're, you're a million miles away. You really think the covenant God that you know is really not there? David knows better than this, and many of us know too, but when that depression comes in, when they just roll in like fog off the ocean, uninvited and unwelcome, but it's here and it's heavy, we overstate the matter. And sometimes in prayer, what I see here is that it's okay to go to God and say, Lord, I feel as if you're a million miles away. I know that you're imminent. I know that you're the God-man. I know that you sympathize with our weakness. I have the right answer. But God, where are you? It won't lift. I'd take a broken leg over this. I'd take two. Because at least it would make more sense. 
I'd look at verse 2. <laughs> How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? I mean, you go, David, really? That's one thing that's premarital counseling 101. Avoid exclusive and universal language. You always, you never. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> so I would look at David and say, Hold, brother, come on. All the day, unremitting. Not a second of hope, not a second of joy. David would say, man, I know the truth. I'm just, this is just how I feel right now. Pray that way. Pray that way. During his time of preaching through the book of Job, John Piper referred to when he was looking at the section on Job's friends counseling Job at his lowest point, you know, they're, they're giving him a theology lesson, which is always super helpful when you're really depressed and anxious is for someone to chastise you about your theology and teach you about the hypostatic union and infralapsarianism. Like, that's a great time for that. They go and try to give him a theology lesson, and what does Job say? He says, will you rebuke words for the wind? And I just remember listening to that sermon by Piper and, and going back to that text and going, that's it. What is Job saying? Words for the wind. Job is saying, I don't mean what I'm saying right now. I know who he is. I know the truth. But life is really heavy, okay? So just, just shut up and just be with me. I don't need a theology lesson. Maybe later, but right now I'm just saying what I feel. And I'm being raw, and I'm being real, and I'm taking it to my father. You want your kids to be real with you, or do you want them to sanitize everything? That's what the psalmist is doing. And there's something else we need to see that depression, I hate this about depression. Look at verse 2. This is so typical. How long must I take counsel in my soul? There it is. What, what is he saying? Well, he could probably be saying a lot of things. But this is what I do know. How long must I take counsel in my soul? Depression is like a curvature of the soul. It bends you inward on yourself. It's like emotional scoliosis. The psalmist is saying, how long must I take counsel in my soul? Morbid introspection is the mean-spirited henchman of depression. It pushes our eyes inward, away from God's glory, and into the dark abyss of our own thoughts. One more Charles Spurgeon quote, then I'll stop. But he is your brother in the faith who suffered with depression his entire ministry and panic attacks. Spurgeon says this, some Christians spend much of their time in what is called introspection. Too many believers wound themselves by studying themselves. Every morning they think of what they should feel. All day long they dwell upon what they are not feeling. And at night they make diligent search for what they have been feeling. The cure is to forget yourself and think only of Christ. So, beloved, with reverent and yet raw emotion, 
Like the psalmist here in the opening verses of Psalm 13, tell your heavenly Father how you feel, even if they are words that you don't totally mean or believe. Pray like this, how long? Father. Number one, be honest. And number two, be ruthless. Be ruthless. What do I mean by be ruthless? I mean this. Ask God to do the one thing that will impact everything. Ask God to do the one thing that will impact everything. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's weird. I mean, if you think when you're in the throes of depression and life is, everything's heavy. Everything is painted in black. There's no nuance when you're depressed, you know. There's no scale. It's either right or wrong, good or bad, ugly or beautiful. When everything's painted in black, every song's in a minor key. When it's that heavy, and then to, to ask God to do this just seems weird to me. Unless, unless David is on to something. David could have said, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Bring physical deliverance. Bring physical healing. Heal my brain. Heal my heart. Do, do whatever you have to do. He didn't do that. I want to know why. What does he say in verse 3? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. I'm really depressed. Do something with my vision. I want to know what that is. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Interesting. David knew that his main problem, although there are many contributing factors to spiritual depression, many, but he knew that the main problem was his eyes. And I take that to mean that David knew that a higher clearer, more majestic view of God and all of his sovereign power was the one thing that would impact everything. He's already told us, where does he spend most of his time? In himself. How long must I take counsel in myself? Well, if I'm looking here, where am I not looking? I'm not looking up. I'm looking in here, and I'm not going to find a very good savior in here. And that's why in Psalm 27, I know we're not there yet, but he's scared, he's surrounded by enemies yet again, and what does he pray for? It's so instructive for the depressed Christian. In Psalm 27, 4, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. I could have asked for 50, but one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what, David? to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. It's an eye problem. I just need to see what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. I'm tired of being in here. Please, there's a million things I need right now in this season. There's a million deliverances I need right now. There's a million resources I need right now. 
but the one thing I need above all that will touch and flavor all aspects of my life is God, help me see you high and lifted up. Let me see you not as a small God, but a big God. Let me see you as not as a potential Savior, but an actual effectual Savior. Let me see you as the one who the seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. Remind me that you are sovereign over every planet and every atom and everything in between, and that Christ died to save me, and he did it willingly, not ashamedly. Help me see that. Help me see that. Because when I don't see that, Lord, I, I go in here. I take counsel in myself all the day long, and I would wager that most of the counsel we give ourselves is not biblical. My wife, when she, she says, you're distant today, Aaron, are you okay? And I'll say, <laughs> from all outward appearances, I'm perfectly healthy. But what's really going on is my heart is skipping beats and my head feels fuzzy and I can't get my thoughts together and I feel like danger is around every corner and I don't know why. So I get quiet. Why am I quiet? Because I'm inside myself. And what am I often doing? I'm preaching bad sermons to myself. And my wife and her wisdom comes along and says, come back to me. You're not here right now. What she's helping me do is get my eyes up. Get your eyes up, Aaron. Lift your head, O saint. That's what he's doing. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Look what he says, lest my enemies say and my foes rejoice over me. I don't, I don't know. We don't know exactly who these enemies were. But whoever or whatever these enemies are, it seems, just if you look at the text, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice. And you think it's because they've killed him, but it's not what he says. They rejoice because I'm shaken. I mean, isn't that weird? Especially in, in ancient times, you think, well, he's scared because they're going to kill him. I would be scared too. Well, yeah, in, in many cases they would. But why is his enemy, whatever these enemies are that are vexing his soul, what are they rejoicing over? It's because he's shaken. I think the enemy would spare your life if you would just curse Christ. That lion that prowls around is after faith. He'll let you keep your life. He'll let you have all the riches of the world. But what did he say to our master? He says, go ahead and take bread. All the kings of the world are yours, but bow down and worship me. It's faith that's the target. And that's why... Depression is the silent killer in the church because it makes saved people feel like they're not. And that's why one of the calls of a pastor, yes, is to rebuke the idol, to not give false assurance to those who make a profession when in fact there are many questions, but one of our high callings is to look at the people of God where we see a million sparks of grace, fighting sin, loving the Lord, all of these signs of regeneration, and we help them see what we see that's there. Say, hey, he loves you. He's for you. The only reason you even care is because you have a new heart. And he who began a good work in you will not fail to complete it. You will not die cast off. Your Lord knows you. And I see grace in your life.
It's a fight for faith. Lest my enemies say and my foes rejoice, it's faith. Whoever they are, they're after faith. David could have asked for relief from anxiety or a more positive outlook on life, but he knew that this was a life or death battle for faith. And so he asked God to do the one thing that will impact everything. He says, light up my eyes, light up my eyes so I don't sleep that sleep of death. My enemies want me to go there. They want me to fall asleep preaching to myself and curling up in a ball within myself and but if you light up my eyes so that I see you for who you are, if you do for me what Isaiah 40 said to the nation of Israel, nation of Israel, you're scared, the enemy's coming, death is imminent, you're all anxious, your wives and your children are going to be killed. There's a lot of reasons to be scared, right? Okay, here's the prescription, Isaiah 40, three words, behold your God. That's what you need. Everything else will take care of itself. That's what the psalmist is getting at when he says, light up my eyes. Andrew Gray, fairly unknown theologian, died in 1861. He answers the question, what are we looking at? <laughs> what, light up my eyes to see what, specifically? He says, the beauty of the Lord is seen in Christ. He was the finest spectacle of moral beauty which men or angels have ever set their eyes on. That's what we need to see. Being awakened to the supremacy of Christ is the antidote to the sleep of death. To see his power, his supremacy, and, and, hear this, I need to see his power and I need to see his passion. I need to be reminded, yes, that he is in control of all things and I need Galatians 2.20 to hit me in my soul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. When you're depressed, one of the hardest doctrines to believe is not infralapsarianism or the hypostatic union. It is the fact that Jesus Christ knows you by name, died for your sins specifically, and continues to love you to this day and is not embarrassed by your condition. God, give me faith to believe. Because if I could just get my heart wrapped around that, the fog would lift. That's what he's praying for. Sad Christian, this is a time to get ruthless. Faith is on the line in this battle, and it is primarily a battle for the eyes. Moreover, it is a battle for you to delight and to love what you see. So my advice is be honest and be ruthless. Hit depression where it hurts at the level of seeing God, savoring him, which fuels the faith that will lift you out of the bog of depression. And finally, number three, and I have to hurry, be courageous. Be courageous. Be honest, be ruthless, be courageous. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean this. Act in good faith for God's glory, grounded upon God's person and promises. Don't wait until you feel better. Act on what you know. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is a very raw prayer. How long, how long, how long? Light up my eyes, get me out of my own head. 
please, Father? Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. What do you mean, David, I have trusted? Note this. Please get this. He says this while he is depressed. Both. I have trusted. Beloved, it is not hypocrisy to feel woefully depressed and simultaneously wonderfully dependent. You say amen, but I spent a lot of time hammering that into the heads of God's people. Hear me. It is not rank hypocrisy. It is not. If that's the case, then Psalm 13 should be cut out of the canon. To go to God and say, Lord, I, I am a walking paradox. I am really sad and I'm scared and I feel like my faith is tiny and yet I am trusting you. That's not hypocrisy. That's faith. That's faith. My children honor me when they say, and they don't say this verbatim, but when they say, I don't understand, nor do I like what you've asked me to do, Dad, but I trust you and I love you, so I'll do it. I remember just one time I was folding laundry. Just a tough season of ministry, a lot of good things too. Some of it self-inflicted, it always is. But I was folding laundry in the basement, kids were younger. From all out outward appearances, everything was great. But it was just this building just could not shake it. Anxious, feel like you're ready to jump out of your skin and yet all you want to do is sleep. You know what I'm saying? And there's so much, all you can think about is all the things you need to do and should be doing. And, and I normally sanitize my prayers because I'm a pastor. We like to, we don't read the KJV anymore, but we pray like that, you know, like we pray like, oh, thou my God, and we get very puritanical. And for once, finally, I was so low and so anxious and so Psalm 13-ish. I remember I was folding laundry and I just kind of threw them. Did you hear that, by the way? I was folding laundry. Tiny's like, hey, I'm going to do it today when we get home. I was folding laundry. I was in the basement and I, I threw it back on top of the dryer and I just got on my knees. And you now hear this. You're like, oh, how wonderful. No, no, no. I was mad because all I could think about was all the work I had to do, all the sermons I had to write, children to raise, bills to pay, good things that have to be dealt with, and I could not find the switch to turn off this depression of soul. And so I hit my knees, and I clenched my teeth, and I, I didn't swear. I, I wasn't irreverent, but I'm, all I could say was just, Father, why? Why? I don't understand. There's... A million other more noble ways to suffer than this. I've got work to do for you. Don't you want me to be effective? Take this thorn away so I can get on with it. I prayed like that. I still pray like that. But what was I saying? I, said, I trust you. I'm coming to you. I'm not going anywhere else but to you. I'm coming to my Father, and I'm telling you, I don't know what you're doing. 
but I'm coming to you because I trust you. You've proven faithful too many times. I'm like the disciples. Lord, you have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? So I'm in your courts as an act of faith, and here I am with unfettered and unpolished emotion. David says, I have trusted you. My heart shall rejoice. I will. That's what we need to preach to ourselves. Why? Preaching the gospel to ourselves gets our eyes where they belong and lifts the fog of confusion that introspection brings. I don't really have time, but I have to say this. One of the most helpful things to me was hearing Martin Lloyd-Jones preach on Psalm 42. Lloyd-Jones said this, our danger is to submit ourselves to our feelings and to allow them to dictate to us, to govern and to master us and control the whole of our lives. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That hit me like a ton of bricks. So in these moments of despair, I started looking at the Psalms and saying, okay, I'm going to feel verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, but I'm going to pray verses 5 and 6. I'm not going to wait till I feel better because I don't know when that's going to be. So in the midst of this, I'm going to say, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Some of you come in and sing and you're just smiling. Some of you sing and cry at the same time. What's that all about? That's that. I'm going to sing what I know to be true until this body catches up or I go home to be with Jesus and it's all done with anyway. But I'm going to sing to my Lord because I know what is true. Because you have dealt bountifully with me. This is an unmistakable forward-looking faith in these statements, and he looks ahead because he also looks back. He says, you have been my salvation. You have dealt bountifully with me. What is he preaching to himself? How should we appropriate that in a preach to ourselves when we're still feeling verses 1 and 2? What am I preaching? Well, first of all, I'm preaching. I'm not listening anymore. And what am I telling myself? Heart, soul, you feel like God's a million miles away. He came a million miles to be near you. He's the son of man, the son of God. He sympathizes with your weakness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is still yours for your sake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. All of your sin is on him so that in him you might be the righteousness of God. Romans 8.1 is still yours in this moment. Even if you don't feel it, there's therefore now no condemnation for you. You might feel fight or flight, but it's not because hell is imminent. That's been done. All the promises, Romans 8.32 is yours in that moment. He who did not spare his own son, he slaughtered his son for you as an enemy. How will he not with him graciously give you all things? Don't doubt in a moment of depression that you will inherit the cosmos and reign with Christ. Put that in perspective. And not only that, I know that many of God's children, some for a season, others for most of their lives, battle things like depression, anxiety, fear, morbid introspection. But may I remind you that Jesus knows what it feels like to be anxious. As the God-man, 
in John 12, 27, in the Garden of Eden, when Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, now is my soul anxious. You don't sweat drops of blood without a real existential physical encounter with fear and anxiety. He was not play acting. Jesus knows what it feels like for God to feel distant. What, what else on the cross, the cry of dereliction, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't play acting, beloved. He knows that feeling to say, how long, O Lord, would you hide your face? And Jesus knew that the one thing that would serve his joy most acutely was setting his eyes on the joy set before him. And this same sympathizing Savior, hear this, he loves to rescue and comfort sad saints. He is not embarrassed of you. He died for you when you were a rabid enemy of God. How much more are you beloved now, even on the days when you don't feel it? That does not change his love for you. Go ahead and pray how long. But preach to yourself, but open my eyes to reality. This in here is not reality. This in here is a hall of mirrors where I get lost. Help me see Christ. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus and not yourself. And then be honest, be ruthless, be courageous. Because the battle for joy is really a battle for sight. So look to Christ and live. Let's pray.